Welcome to the NPO Media Podcast, Episode 11. This podcast is produced by volunteers with the National Alliance on Mental Illness, New York City, Staten Island Chapter. My name is Pete, and as host, my goal is to provide a voice for those living with mental illness, their loved ones and family members, and in future episodes, clinicians who will share insights and experiences as treatment providers. Opinions expressed on the podcast do not represent those of NAMI and belong to the interviewees themselves. For this episode, I interviewed Desiree, who bravely shares her struggle trying to get help for a loved one experiencing mental illness and substance abuse issues. Why don't we start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Hi, everybody. My name is Desiree. I am a lifelong Staten Islander. I am the mother of a 20-year-old man, and I am a uh, female professional. Desiree, perhaps you could give us some background into the challenges that you and your loved one have faced. Okay, so I am currently involved or helping a loved one who has been involved with drugs and alcohol abuse for about 25 years. Um, He is 37 years old. He is currently in an 18-month program for rehab. He's upstate, so he's in a court-ordered rehab facility. It is a a sentence as it is. He, until recently, did not know that part of his issues were part of a mental health disability. And I don't think he's even grasped how much of a mental health problem he has. He just grew up assuming that he was just an addict. Didn't understand that he had mental health problems. He just thought it was just he was an addict and it was an addict and that was it. And he was always just treated for his addiction, never for the mental health problems that he had. As we grew closer and I tried to help him through these problems, we finally start to get to the issues, which was definitely bipolar some ADHD, things like that. He would reminisce about being a child and having to just watch TV and then all of a sudden have to just jump up and down and do, and do jumping jacks. Things that he never spoke about to anybody else. He never spoke about to his parents um, or his mother and had never just even thought about until we had really tried to get to the bottom of some of his problems or some of his issues. He really started making some breakthroughs late last year. He was finally on some course of medication, but as he started working through the medication, a lot more anxiety started. And as he would go to these extended appointments, the doctors would just say, okay, we'll try a different course of medication next time, and it would be a month out. And as he was working through these new found feelings, every single step of a month was a little bit too long for his new feelings in recovery, not using drugs, but when you're having these new anxieties, the month's wait were just too long. And he finally relapsed after about 90 days of sobriety. After that, what was the motivation for him to get help? Did he ask for help? The last time when he went into gut treatment last year, I physically pulled him out of the last, I don't even know, drug house or whatever I had found him in. I pulled him out. I brought him to Sagine. He felt like there was no hope. He was on his way to dying. He was admitted as an inpatient. He was there for 35, 40 days. And then he was outpatient to YMCA. And at that time, he was given a very good treatment program, five days a week, five hours a day, at which point he was doing very well. And he was finally getting the care that he needed. He was finally diagnosed as bipolar and was given some medication and treatment and things like that. And he was, you know, finally doing well and learning different parts of his disability, which he had never really done before. He had always just been treated as just an addict. So he was finally being treated for the disabilities. What was his reaction to being diagnosed as having a mental illness? Was he accepting of that? 
he was trying his best to accept them. He was very afraid of them. He was very afraid of the thoughts of what this meant. He didn't want to be labeled. That was his biggest thing. He never wanted to be labeled as having mental health problems. And we would we would have these, I wouldn't say arguments, but I would just say you're okay to be labeled as an addict or as a criminal. Because um, he, of course, through all of his life, with all these drug convictions or these relapses, he would have he had been arrested. And I'm like, you're okay to be labeled this way, but not as a mental health case. And I'm like, you can actually get help. You can get social security benefits if you're that bad and all these different services, but you did not want to be labeled, you know, with these mental health disabilities, which is a real life thing. If you have cancer, you're going to take care of your cancer. You know, he also had had three major brain injuries throughout his life that had never been taken care of. The first one happening at about four. So these are major things that had happened, you know, that have never been taken care of. I had said to him, these are things that you really need to look into. Like, you know, he's a neurologist and he's got this fear of doctors. So it was very frustrating to try to come to grips with these things at the time. So it sounds like there were many factors that may have contributed to the severity of his mental illness. So my question is, was he treated for his symptoms and what kind of treatment was that? Yes, he was on, the doctors had prescribed him he was on Seroquel and Prozac, and the Seroquel just was knocking him out. So he was sleeping a good portion of the day, I would say, I don't know, you know, 16, 18 hours a day. So that was not comforting for him. He did not want to be sleeping. He was also still on, so he was on Suboxone to block the heroin. So he was on all this medication. He was not used to taking the medication. He was doing well when he was on it at first, but he wasn't used to the feelings that he was having and have these feelings without being on, just without having to ever being able to drink or, or use drugs. He was using his program. He was using all of his tools the best he could. But eventually, as he was having more and more anxiety, he just would say, I'm always scared. I'm always, always scared. Having had dealt with some mental health anxiety and things like that as a child or as a preteen, and having had dealt with family members who had it, I did ask the doctor about having anti-anxiety, not necessarily like an Ativan or anything like that, but maybe a Buzzpar. Um, something that could maybe just take the edge off every day that would help. And the doctor initially said, well, let's just wait, give it another month. Unfortunately, he did not make it to the next appointment before relapsing. And he was EDP'd the day before Thanksgiving. So that was a little bit of a struggle that we went through. For listeners that don't know what the term EDP refers to, maybe you could explain that. He was taken away by ambulance after a struggle with the police. He was an emotionally disturbed person, taken away by ambulance to hospital. He was then given a cocktail of medication to help him be put to sleep because he was very, very agitated. He was then taken to the psychiatric wing of the hospital. He was there for about 15 hours. He was seen by the psych doctor who then released him and said he was lucid and there was nothing wrong with him and he would not be in need of further assistance that night, which was very frustrating considering the fact that I picked him up out of basically a puddle on the floor from him saying he wanted to hurt himself and didn't deserve to live. So to see him in that position at eight o'clock in the morning or 10 o'clock in the morning and to have a doctor tell me at seven o'clock at night there was nothing wrong with him. He had just relapsed and there was nothing wrong. It was very frustrating to know that this doctor just seemed to not get it or not care and just wrote him off as an addict as opposed to a mental health patient that I knew he was and was really struggling with anxiety at that time. After he was treated and released from the emergency room, what kind of outreach follow-up did the hospital do? 
They did have a mobile crisis team come to the house about two or three times. They just kept coming to the house and saying, oh, I was like, well, you know, you didn't keep them yesterday. So, you know, you keep coming to the house. You know, I don't know why you're coming to the house and you wouldn't keep them yesterday. They're like, oh, we just want to check up on them and make sure everything's okay. And I was like, well, would have been okay would have been to keep them yesterday. Coming to my house today is not necessarily the helpful part of what's going on. It was more of a concern or discomfort because it was a disruption in my house more than anything. They would come to my house, even though he was in program, they would come to the house and disturbing my mom who would be resting or we would call him like no he's not here please do not send mobile crisis we don't need you anymore at this point what we needed was him to be kept in and they would still send them for about a period of seven days so that was frustrating for us it was a matter of who these gentlemen come you know in suits coming to the door things like that it was look like either cops or you know anybody acs or anything looking like that just coming to your door in the middle of the day you know it was a repeated and it was a repeated offense after repeatedly asked please do not come to the door they would repeatedly do that seemingly like they were trying to fulfill a check mark on their box of paperwork as opposed to helping him when he absolutely needed to help in as for inpatient going back for a moment to the emergency room visit Did they explain to you what the criteria for admission was to the hospital and why he did not meet that? Um, He needed to be a danger to himself or to society, which 10 hours earlier that morning, the cops thought he was a danger to himself. Um, He actually had gotten to an altercation with the cop, and the reason that he was not charged was because they had him as an EDP. So he was not charged with the physical injury to the officer because he was seen as somebody who was emotionally disturbed. So he could not be charged as somebody who was not within their right mind. So he was stuck. The officers clearly knew there was an issue with him, but somehow the doctor checked off the box that he was completely fine and could go home and was releasing him to a shelter that night as opposed to because he wasn't sure if the family was willing to take him back. So he was going to just release him to a shelter. It would seem to me that having a physical altercation with the police officer would constitute a danger to others. So at that point, he was no longer considered a danger to others because he was sedated from all that medication. Yes, completely, thoroughly sedated. Could barely walk when I got him, when he was picked up. Because he had been on a cocktail mixer of Haldol and Ativan, and he had had three shots of it by the time he had seen the doctor 14 hours after the initial consult. He was either going to be released to the home or the shelter. I did pick him up because he was at that point he couldn't walk so they released him to the shelter thinking the family would not pick him up but I did pick him up because I did know he needed help he was not physically a danger to to the household or us he was I was more concerned he was a danger to himself but at that point he couldn't walk because he was so sedated still so of course talking to the doctor he wasn't gonna be in a danger I mean I think it would be helpful for the doctors who are finally seeing them hours after the initial intake to read the paperwork. The initial paperwork showed how agitated it was. He was having to be handcuffed to the bed because he was clearly a danger to the staff. He had two officers outside of his room. So clearly there was a danger at the time. So for the doctor to make the statement and say, oh, he's fine, there was clearly a need at the time for him to have gotten some kind of help. But unfortunately, that's just not what happened that night. And it it was a life-altering event that day because he did not get help that day. And I felt within the next few days, it just changed his outlook on how things were going to go. And within the next 10 weeks, he wound up being locked up in a prison facility as opposed to getting the mental health help that he actually needed. You had mentioned that he was on Suboxone because of his heroin abuse. Were there other drugs that he was using? Um, so he was an, an addict from early on, age of, of 13, 14 years old. So he started with pot, he would drink, he, but basically was an opiate user. He wasn't always, um, heroin user. He was not a needle user at all. Never was a needle user. Wasn't the kind of 
user he was. He was an opiate user, any kind of opiate he can get his hands on. He, he never hid it. So that was one thing I can say. He was just not somebody to hide what he did. Maybe the amount that he did, he would hide, but not what he did. Um, he did in the last two years, has overdosed about seven times. None in my presence. He would disappear for a month, three weeks, two weeks at a time. So I would never see any of these actions. I would find out later, sometimes get a hospital bill, things like that. That's how I would find out, you know, these things happen. Or he would just tell me, like, you know, it happened, you know, I was found on somebody's front lawn or, you know, I woke up in the hospital, things like that. So he knew he was getting worse. And I think that is why last time when he went through rehab, he was trying to take it seriously because he knew that what was out there was getting worse and was getting stronger and more than he could really, his body could physically handle. So you told me that he has been resuscitated multiple times. Yes, he's had Narcan resuscitation in, we're in 2018, so the year 2017, I think he had it four times, at least four times last year. I'm not sure the, the details of it. He, we've never gotten that far detailed into it. Twice last summer, I don't know who saved him, how he was saved, or anything like that. I don't know the details at all. I just know that it did happen. And he spent some portion of last year on Rikers Island and some portion of last year in rehab. So for him to have gotten Narcan saved four times was a big portion because he spent a good portion of the year not able to even use. So he was using a lot. Getting back to what you had said earlier about court-ordered treatment, how did that come about? So after his last relapse, he was living on the street. He was not doing well. He was walking on the street a lot, things like that. He was arrested for, I don't even know what at this point. And the court decided that he needed to spend either a certain amount of days in lockup or go to a long stint in rehab. And that's what he chose was to take the long-term rehab. And he decided it's what he needed for his life. And that was the better option for him at this time to really try to figure out what was wrong, spend some time away from the city and take some time to really work on what meds might actually work in his system while not being able to be here and away from the distractions of everything. How long has he been in this program now? Oh, he's been there about three months. So he'll be there for like another, you know, eight to 10 months. And it's a step down program. So we'll see how things go. So what I'm really curious to know is how are you holding up through all this? And what steps are you taking to take care of yourself? I am, while he was at the YMCA, we initially started to go to a family therapy session there. And while he had fell off and, and fell out of the program because he relapsed, I continued working with one of the counselors there. So while that worked out for me, as I've been able to work through all of my years of trauma of dealing with addicts, because I've had to deal with addicts on and off for a good portion of my life, I've been able to work through years of dealing with addicts, years of basically the abuse that you deal with having to live with and learn with living with an addict. I think it's important to learn that even if you're not enabling, you're still living with it. You go through the ups and the downs with them, whether or not you want to. And it's a recovery process that you have to live with and you have to learn to get past and you don't have to live the abuse with them. You can choose to move past it and still love the person, but you can choose to live your life as well. I think it's important to know that. I am learning in my counseling that it's very important to not live for the person going through the drug abuse. You can be a caregiver, but you cannot give your entire life for them because you you have to live for yourself as well. And we learned that there was a visit last week and I went up to live and they said, you know, when the addict goes up and they're doing well, your whole life is going great. But when they go down, your whole life crashes and burns. And I did live that for a while. And I know now that as I've been getting my things getting together, 
together and, and going through my own counseling and learning the way the whole system works and how and, and I can be manipulative and take things for granted. And I just, I will not play that game anymore. I will not live that life anymore. And you have to make your own choices and the addict makes their choices and you can't live your life for the addict. And it's very important to understand that and learn that. And I have a job to do. I have a child to raise. I go to school and these are all very important things. And while I want to be there and help him get through his day, I cannot give my life for him to do that. He has a responsibility to make his steps and get home. And if he can't without using, I cannot make every single step for him. It's, it's not the way to live. It's hard because I can remember just thinking, oh, if I would have just not stayed 10 more minutes at work when I didn't need to and I could have been there or maybe he wouldn't have made that choice or it's not a reality, it's not a way to live and it's harsh to feel that way and it's harsh to get to that point in your chest but it's not a matter of not loving, it's a matter of you have to love yourself before you can help others and you can't stop living because somebody else is choosing to live their happiness a different way and it's, it's, it's a harsh reality and it really is. One of the topics I've heard brought up many times in NAMI support group meetings is how do I keep my loved one adherent with medications and treatment? Families can sometimes begin to revolve around the sick individual like satellites, thereby causing dysfunction throughout the entire family. You can find the same issues if you're dealing with somebody who's bipolar and they don't want to take their meds, except you will have probably a little more control if you can get maybe a court order and things like that and have somebody either taken into the hospital or, or can have a court order for them to take their meds or whatever it is. You know, you're still living that up and down because, especially with somebody who's bipolar, because, you know, I can remember the day after he was released from the hospital from when he was EDP'd, you know, the next morning he's in the kitchen up and down dancing and everything else. The next minute, two minutes later, he's outside crying, you know, and it's like, right, the doctor said he was nothing wrong with him last night, you know, and this wasn't the relapse. This was somebody who was really going through these bipolar problems, you know, and it's, it was unfortunate to watch, but you're also living that as a family member. You're going through these upswings and downswings and you don't know what you can say because you don't want to put this person to an upswing or downswing. You're just, I can remember always saying, I feel like I'm always walking on eggshells and it's, you don't know what to say and there's this piteous stomach and you don't know, it's just not a great way to feel like you have to live. And it's just feeling like that all the time, 24-7. It's you go to sleep with a worry, you wake up with a worry. And it's not a happy place to be. Ultimately, a person needs to make their own choice that they're ready to work their recovery. Yes. I mean, I can tell you firsthand, having lived, unfortunately, with two different addicts, that it's in the end it is their choice. You know, you can help them as much as you want. You can be as supportive as much as you want. But in the end, it is it's their life. It is their choice. I have gone to Naranon and, and watched parents who have given their entire life, their sacrifice, everything they could. And it's, it is parents want to give everything they can to their children. But at, at the end of the day, they have to want it for themselves. You can't want it any more for them. They want it for themselves. They have to want it. It's their life. You can't follow them. You can't be them. You have to live your life for you. They have to live their lives for them. And you can be supportive. You cannot have alcohol in the house and all of that. But at the end of the day, they have to keep making the right steps. It's important to note for people that are not from the Staten Island or New York City area that the opiate crisis has been a huge problem here and has affected people from all walks of life. It does not discriminate and has resulted in encounters with the criminal justice system and sadly many, many overdoses as drugs such as fentanyl are added to the heroin to make it more potent. I think the problem is that we've seen here was that the the pills were a problem to begin with and they weren't taken care of. And that what I would say was about 
seven or eight years ago. They weren't taken care of to begin with. And at first it was like, oh, it's okay, it's just pills. Then it turned into heroin. And then once it started crawling across people's front yards, then it was a problem. That was too late by that time. You know, and it, and it wasn't a problem. Just like cancer, drugs will invade anybody's house. It doesn't matter what your race, religion, creed, or anything else is. It's going to invade anybody's house. Mental health illness will invade anybody's house. They don't care who they attack. They will just attack. You have to be able to help and willing to fight with it. I think we are in a good place right now with the DA willing to help with mental health court. I think it's a very good program. I think it's in a very good place. Based on your experience, can you explain a little bit about what mental health court is? So this is why um, he's currently upstate as opposed to just spending time in prison. So the function of the mental health court is instead of just keeping people locked in a facility or not getting help, they will either help them recover, they will help the addicts or the people with mental health problems get the help that they need. They will set them up with a doctor or, or a facility or outpatient treatment as opposed to just keeping them in Rikers Island instead of keeping them a revolving door. That is the point of mental health court. The problem that I saw firsthand was that when he was on Rikers, he had been there in a month to six weeks and back on medication. So when he went to be interviewed, they were like, well, there's nothing wrong with him. He's lucid, so he can't get services. And it's like, well, you, he's been lucid now because he's been on medication for six weeks. So there's the flaw in your system is that, but he's been on medication now for six weeks. So it's almost like you have to deny the medication in order to not to seem lucid in order to, to gain the services. So you either have to be able to get people to these patients quicker, which I know is hard. It's red tape. There's not enough people. There's a lot of people in the system who need help or understand that if they start the medication, which is the goal, that they will obviously be in a better space mentally, but still need the help that brought them into Rikers to begin with. So you have to work on that. But it's a new program and there's going to be places that you have to put things back together and make it work, but you're still taking the right steps by having it. And it's already saved, you know, I'm sure hundreds of lives and they're working towards the right steps. He's away at a treatment center. You're in counseling, you're in school, you're parenting, and you're working. What's next for you? Right now, I am just trying to recover from years of dealing with addiction and really mental health illness. I have looked at maybe doing some KSAC counseling and things like that. Not sure if that's really where I want to be at this time. I do see the, the effects of the abuse of both mental health illness and narcissists and drug addiction has on people and children and families. So I think no matter what I do, I will get involved in volunteering in that in some way. So whether or not I do a case at counseling or anything like that, I will be involved in fundraising or something like that at some point in the next few years. I'm currently in school. I'll be graduating in a couple of months. So, you know, I don't necessarily see a big jump in my career change right now, but we'll see. You know, you never know. My goal is to get myself on track and, and stay on track with where I am and maybe and keep supporting him where he's at, um, but maybe from afar, because I think that it's this time that he has to do it for himself and, and it's most important. And I think the distance is very good for him. Desiree, I wish you the best of luck in the future, and I thank you very much for joining me on this podcast, and I hope others find some strength, insight, and also realize that they are not alone in their struggles. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope you're all well. Thank you for listening to the NPO Media Podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. If you or someone you know is interested in participating in an NPO Media Podcast, please email us at info at npomedia.org.